Okay, so we are going to look at one verse today. One verse will cover the length of the sermon. If you are able, please rise to the reading of God's word. We are in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Verse 18. The inerrant and authoritative word of God reads as follows. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves this morning to learn from your word in that this world, there is, there will be suffering. We have the confidence that you are a gracious Father who has given us your Holy Spirit as well as the righteousness of Christ by your grace through our faith. Therefore, Lord, we plead with you that you may comfort us in any suffering that is ongoing, that may have passed and we're still feeling it, or that is to come. For we have the hope of everlasting life in Christ, and as we await for that hope in the age to come, when all is restored, that you walk with us. May we have that certainty this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The title of this morning's sermon is Considering or Consider the Suffering. Those are the opening words of that verse that we just read. In which Paul says that he considers that the sufferings of this age, of this time, of this present time, do not compare with the glory to come. There's often a misunderstanding, this notion that if you are a Christian, that for the most part, everything in our lives, in your life, should be fine and dandy, well put together. That everything goes relatively well, everyone is happy, healthy, and if not wealthy, at least very pleasantly or comfortably well off, etc. I remember growing up as a kid in South Central LA, and on the weekend mornings, we, we kind of went to Roman Catholic Church sometimes. But when I didn't, I remember flipping through the channels. We didn't have cable, so some of the channels there, the local channels would air this service from a church called Iglesia Universal, Universal Church. And their main motto is, Pare de sufrir. Stop suffering. But now, in retrospect, I've done a little bit of research in my studies about the faith. Come to find out, this is Universal Church of the Kingdom of God. That's our official name. They're headquartered in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And their main motto of that organization is stop suffering. Okay? Now, when you pitch that to a community that is suffering, to families that are in disarray and disarray and poverty, wouldn't you say, that sounds pretty appealing. I want to stop suffering right now. Right? Stop suffering. Who would want that? As we consider suffering, as Paul says, that he considers the suffering of this age, we ought to think and ponder and reflect and understand what the Bible teaches about suffering 
it is not what I say or what a pastor of such heretical church would say for their commercials, but it is what does God say in his word about suffering? Through the suggestion of a fellow brother here, I listened to a sermon by Dr. Stephen Lawson this week. And it was about suffering. He made the following observation. Which goes something like this. It says that when he preaches on suffering in churches in countries such as Russia, and he starts expounding upon what the Word of God says about the suffering of Christians, that it doesn't take long for him to see people weep because they can immediately identify with what is being preached. In contrast, he says he preaches a similar sermon in the U.S. or in the westernized world and we find ourselves scratching our heads like, what, what does this guy mean, suffering? Almost as if saying, what? We must suffer? I don't know about that. I mean, I'm suffering because i got to wake up early to go to church or to go serve. Does that count? What does the Bible say? The overarching promise of God to his people is as follows. First, Matthew 3, 2. The first words coming out of John the Baptist when he went out to preach. What he's saying? Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to hear a word from God, is the first thing you should hear. Repent, because there is a holy God of whom you are an enemy. Repent. Number two, overarching promises of God as you repent, 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, implying that there's no repentance, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. For those who have repentance, you have the promise of eternal life. Someone may say, well, you Christians are so arrogant. You, you say that you know that you have to. Yes, we do. Not because I say so, but because God says so. He says you have the assurance of eternal life. Repentance gives us the assurance of eternal life. And then... John 16, 33. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So what is God's promise then? What is the overarching principle here? God tells us to repent from sin. In that, we will inherit eternal life by God's grace through faith in Christ. And with that will come tribulation. Jesus says you will have. Not if. You will have tribulation. And along with that promise is that God will be with you through those tribulations. Now is anywhere there any promise of health, wealth, prosperity, no conflicts, no suffering, it's not there, my friends. It is not there. Now, granted, let's talk about this. Does living a life of obedience to God give us a better chance, practically speaking, of avoiding the consequences of our own sin? Yes, absolutely. 
Deuteronomy 6.24 reads, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our, God, for our good always, that He may preserve us alive as we are in this day. So there's a promise that if we live by the statutes of God, that we, if we trust that obeying God will bring us blessing, there is truth to that, absolutely. Some everyday examples of that would be as we endeavor in our projects, in our lives, in our work, is counting the cost. How much am I committing to? Can I do that? From there, can I keep my promises? Am I letting my yes be yes and my no be no? Do we abstain from sexual immorality? Bible is very clear on the consequences of that. Are we being honorable in our places of work? Are we being diligent in managing our money? Are we honoring our spouse? Are we honoring our father and mother? Are we pursuing, for those of you that are single, a relationship with someone that is not a Christian? Are we seeking to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Etc., etc. Abiding by God's commandments in the different areas of our everyday life will, by and large, allow us to dodge unnecessary suffering. That is clear. Today, the suffering that we may experience as Christians, however, is only for this lifetime, even if it's a consequence of our sin. And yet, that suffering is not meaningless. It's not for the sake of suffering. But it has an ultimate purpose. So then what is Paul's main point that we can extract from this verse today? That is, the Christian will experience suffering. Not if, you will experience suffering. And that suffering cannot compare to the promised glory to come. So we will consider for this suffering aspect. Romans 8.18, let's reread it here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When Paul uses that word, or those two words, I consider, the context here is that Paul is telling us, given what I know, given what has been revealed, I can tell you the following with certainty. And he's given us that revelation. And then he says, the sufferings, the meaning there is affliction. One of the Bible dictionaries, a consultant says, it's a state of great suffering and distress due to adversity. This can be physical, mental, emotional. There are times when somebody can seem okay, relatively speaking, but yet they are suffering, they are under affliction what Paul's talking about. And then Paul says, the sufferings of this present age, of this present time, in this translation. The, the Bible talks about this age and the age to come. Okay? This age, we're in it now, and then the age to come. And Paul is talking about the sufferings in this age. Okay? Luke 18, 29 and 30, which is follows. This is Jesus talking. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So there's promises of blessings in this age and the age to come. Because right? even though we have suffering, the context there, Jesus is saying, you may use all, not only possessions, but family members for the sake of the gospel. And in that, you will receive blessings. With those blessings, do you think suffering will not be included if you lose such things? We're talking about the closest bonds that we have. It's imaginable to me to think that I would lose wife or kids for the sake of the kingdom of God. And yet, God asks each and every one of us, do you love me more than these? It's a hard question. Promises of blessings in this age and the age to come. And then we know that Jesus is Lord over both ages. This age and the age to come. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 19 and 21. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This age and the age to come. Now, here's my point here. Paul is saying, for the Christian, there is suffering in this age. What is the key takeaway? For the Christian, in the age to come, there will be only rejoicing and glory. In this age, there's suffering. What about for the non-Christian? My beloved brethren, we were talking about the visible and the invisible church in our Sunday school today to the visible church and say you will suffer in this age in the age to come you will experience joy and glory for the non-Christian even if you are in the visible church but yet you do not have genuine repentance you will not only experience suffering in this age but you will experience ultimate suffering in the age to come you think it's bad now? Wait. One of the reasons why I pray for folks that defy God and are openly enemies of God, pretty much stopping short of saying, let God bring whatever he asks for me, they have no clue what they're talking about. Because it doesn't take long for those same folks to complain when they're experiencing suffering or hardship. Imagine encountering the wrath of God full on. In such manner will the non-believer suffer in the age to come. This age, suffering for the Christians. Not so in the age to come. So let's talk about the aspects of suffering. First, let's talk about suffering as a result of God's discipline. Suffering as a result of God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8, which includes a quote from Proverbs 3. It reads, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
This is a quote from Proverbs. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproached by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then goes, uh, the quote that goes on from the Hebrews. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God disciplines his children. That discipline very often, almost and not always, brings suffering. We see the example of David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, when David presumptuously takes a census, his pride is exposed, and soon thereafter realizes that he has sinned against God and will suffer the consequences of his sin. Let us recap there. 2 Samuel 24, verses 10 and 14b, it says, this is after the fact, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then David said to God, which is a prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So much can be extracted from that scripture. We see a pattern. There's sin, there's recognition, owning of that sin, and repentance. And David yet still suffered the consequence. And notice what David says. He says, he rather fall into the hand of discipline of God because he knows that God is merciful versus falling into the hands of his enemy because he knows that man is not merciful. See that? May we recognize that in our discipline, it is better to fall in the hands of God so that he can discipline us then fall into the hand of wicked men. They will not have mercy on you. Now if David, a man after God's own heart, if David was not spared from suffering the consequences of his sin, this is one case. There's many other cases that David tells in this, right? If Moses was not spared from suffering the consequences of his sin when he struck the rock, are we to think that we can judge, that we can dodge God's discipline in suffering consequences of our sin? Let us consider that as we consider the suffering. Some of it, in some of our cases, maybe most of it, is because of our own sin. Secondly, Let's look at suffering as a process that God uses to refine his people. Psalm 66, 10 to 12, it says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on, your, on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. 
yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Why does God allow such trials and tribulations in our life? He tests his people, puts us through suffering. Why? Like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm minding my own business. I'm serving. I'm praying. I'm reading. I'm pleading with God. My brothers and sisters, the short answer, God allows that and ordains it for your own good and for his glory. This reminds us that then we must learn to exercise our faith. Exercise our faith. It's easy to say we are exercising our faith when everything is fine, everything is going good. Can we exercise our faith when our life has been shipwrecked? Then it's better to complain, right? Many of us would rather complain how everybody else is doing you wrong. I'm the victim of circumstance. But where is our faith? When God is refining us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. This is Paul speaking about his tribulations. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Was Paul under sin when he was out there preaching the gospel, planting churches? debating and rebuking all the false teachers. Was Paul not doing the work of God? And yet, Paul says, we were despaired even to the point of death. And Paul gives us a reason right there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of why God allowed him to go through such suffering on the edge of death. Why? He's, he tells us. So that he will learn to trust not in himself, but in God who raises the dead. Think about it. This is mind-blowing. Wouldn't Paul be a man of great faith? Wouldn't Paul know that all that is the working of God? And yet we have that there for our understanding, for our lesson that even the Apostle Paul was put through that and the disciples with him so that they would learn to trust not themselves, but God, who raises the dead. Paul understood that. Do we think that we ought to be spared from such suffering? Remember the story of Joseph. He was sold by his brothers. He was betrayed by his own blood family. That, too, was in God's plan. That would ultimately be used to show God's sovereign plan for his people. That suffering of Joseph was for the good of his people and for God's glory. Suffering as a result of God refining his people for our good, for his glory. Then we see that God prunes 
What is prune in the language that the Bible uses in John chapter 15? The, the definition of that to prune is to cultivate, to tend, to cut back the growth of a plant in order for it to grow healthier and produce more fruit. John 15, 2, that's, John, that's the Lord Jesus talking about abiding. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I once heard a pastor talking about this verse, and he explained that he was familiar with the art of gardening and pruning and cutting away. And he said that the first time he saw someone tending a fruit tree and pruning it, his first thought was, what are you doing? You're killing the tree. What did you leave? It's gone. He said, I'm pruning. Relax. Soon thereafter, you see more fruit. Right? The, food, the tree was given fruit. After it became pruned, it gave even more, even an abundance of fruit. Now with that reference there, John 52, there is the cutting away, tossing out of waste. There's no fruit. And there's the pruning, cutting, tending to it. Both hurt. Both are cutting. But there's a vast difference. One of those is a complete cutting off because you do not belong to Jesus. Whereas the other one is cultivating, is pruning so that more fruit may come. So my brothers and sisters, do not be surprised if you are growing in Christ. You are producing fruit. You are being faithful. And then your master comes and starts pruning you. It's not because you sinned. It's because he wants you to become even more fruitful. God is pruning you. We also have suffering for the sake of the kingdom. This is persecution. Being in a position of disfavor because you are a Christian. Because you hold to a biblical worldview. We are seeing this more and more in our public square today. Obviously we're not persecuted as some others in, in other countries are. But nevertheless, I believe that in my lifetime there will be laws that will prohibit us from teaching our children Christian doctrine. In the name of equality. In the name of banning hate speech. Okay, some of this is already on, underway today. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 12. I'm mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27. It says, this is Paul comparing himself. It says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater, greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Thirty times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger 
in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toils and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is Paul suffering for the sake of the kingdom. When he's out there doing God, he's not being disobedient, he's following the word of God. He's preaching, and he's being persecuted by who? By all of the above. All of the above. Within the church, without the church, from government, from Gentiles, from everybody. This made me think, whenever we're going out to do ministry, whenever we go out to a trip, family trip, maybe a vacation or what have you, what is one of the first things that we pray for? Anybody? What do we pray for? Safety. Safety. Isn't that something? Shall we be foolish and take danger head on just for the sake of it? Like, I'm going to go preach the gospel to the cars on the freeway passing by? I'll be foolish. No. Right? Obviously. But, could we consider, perhaps, that if we are doing God's work, we are not entitled to an environment of safety. That we will have things not going according to our plan in our everyday life, in our trips, in our ministry. Because God wants to put us in a place where it's not safe. Where we will be in danger. And that will be for our good, to exercise our faith, and for His glory. Our brothers and sisters... We are not entitled to be in a safety zone all of our lives, especially as Christians, free of suffering. That is not biblical Christianity. We will suffer. And we cannot be presumptions to always be praying for safety. Now, I must confess that I have, by God's grace, prayed in my last few trips that I've had abroad and I pray that if God wants to put me in a situation that is not safe that it would be for my good and for his glory that is hard to pray for me I don't want to do that when I'm leaving my wife and kids behind let us consider that as we consider the sufferings of this age Now the last point here is the second portion of verse 18 that we've studied today. Suffering is temporary. There is something great to come. There is glory. There is joy to come. There is an everlasting peace that is to come for the Christian. Romans 8, 18, let's read again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to us. My brothers, the suffering of the Christian is temporary. The suffering in this world for the Christian is like an experience that is intensifying. It's building up. It's building up. And Brother James will preach next week that it's building up as a woman who is about to give birth. A woman who is in labor. And that analogy reminds us that 
what is to come as a woman giving labor is life. There's pain, there's suffering that is building up to this epic moment where for the Christian there will be the entrance into the everlasting portion of the life that we're promised. The discomforts and tribulations of this life are only for a little while, as we see in 1 Peter 5, 10, 11. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See the great hope that we have? Even the song that we sang today, that the sufferings we have are for a little while. Comparison to the timeline of eternity, the suffering that you are experiencing or will experience or have experienced, it's for a tiny moment. Because we are called to the eternal glory in Christ, in which He will restore, He will confirm, He will strengthen and establish us. The suffering, then, of the Christian is not in vain. The suffering of the Christian is to conform us more and more to the image and character of Christ, who suffered once and for all for our sins. As we walk in this life to be more and more like Jesus, the path to meet Jesus in glory is not without tribulation. That is, it will be when we, when our appointed time comes to meet God in the time of our physical death, we will have passed through suffering. There's no path to glory without suffering. Just want to be clear, we're not talking about suffering so that we are saved. No, we are talking about the suffering of a Christian who has been justified by faith, by God's grace. So what can we take away today? What are some reflections? First, my brother, my sister, are you suffering? Are you suffering as a Christian? I'd like to tell you, there's not only hope for you, there's a purpose for your suffering. There is a purpose for your suffering. If your suffering is due to God's discipline, repent. Repent of sin. Confess the sin as David did. And fall on the mercy of God. Amen. Fall on the mercy of God. It's there for you. If your suffering is because you are producing fruit and God wants you to produce even more fruit. God wants to be glorified in your life. Rejoice. Scripture tells us to rejoice in our trials and our suffering. For it will conduct us in a matter that will make us more and more into the image of Christ. Rejoice if you're being proven. And then know that what God is doing with you in suffering is not in vain. As it may also be because of persecution. Remember what the apostles said that they were joyous, they were celebrating, that they were worthy of suffering and being mistreated for the sake of Christ. Jesus said, if they hate you, don't be surprised. They hated me. 
they're not going to love the servants if they already hated the master and crucified him. So take heart, my brother, my sister, if you are suffering today. It is for a purpose, and God is doing a great work in your life. Secondly, are you suffering as a non-Christian? I pointed out this difference briefly. I will recap it here. The suffering of the Christian in this lifetime, in this age, is the worst that a Christian will experience. This is as worse as it gets. Whereas, the suffering of the non-Christian, as bad as it could be, and it is bad, as bad as it could be, is the best they'll ever have it. Brothers and sisters, let that sink in. There's a lot of suffering in this world. For those who die without Christ, they have not begun to see the beginning of suffering with eternal separation from a holy God in condemnation in hell for eternity. The non-Christian goes from suffering in this world into more eternal suffering which they have no clue could exist. And to you, my friend, I say repent. Trust in Christ by faith. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will give you faith. He will give you eternal life. Repent of sin. Reconcile with Jesus today. Lastly, there is one who has suffered. There is the one whose way of suffering and obedience has brought us eternal life. Jesus, he suffered. He is described as a man of sorrows. Jesus experienced the ultimate suffering anyone could suffer. Being sinless, he paid for our sins. Being blameless, he took the ultimate punishment. He endured the wrath of God in a moment in space and time. A true event in history when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished. He took the wrath of God. And in that, Jesus shows us that if we follow him, to be in glory with him, we too will experience suffering. But not the suffering that he experienced by taking the wrath of God. He spared us from that suffering. We will suffer in this lifetime because we are his children. And yet Jesus said, take heart because he will be with us until the end of the age. We should take joy in such promise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you make us see that in this fallen world, the suffering we experience, as bad as it can, it is. It's nothing when we compare that to the glory that awaits us when we meet Christ, our Savior, face to face. I pray for those who do not have this hope, Lord, that you would grant them repentance of sin and faith in Christ, that they may also become adopted children according to your promise. I pray your Holy Spirit will speak to each one of us today and give us comfort to those that are your children, Lord, specifically those that are suffering today, that you offer as the Father of all consolation, that you offer 
relief, that you offer hope, that you offer peace, that you offer yourself to fall upon your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for being a God of comfort. May we learn in our sufferings not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in things, not to trust in riches, but to trust in you who have the power to raise the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name.